0: This podcast was recorded on Sunday, 2nd of June, 2019. Hello, this is our Brave New Economic World podcast number six. In this episode, Jerry and Paul are joined by special guest Alistair Winter. Alistair is an economic and finance advisor to major international organizations. He also appears regularly on TV and radio and writes articles for a wide variety of publications. The three discuss the yield curve collapse, they wonder how central bankers actually still have jobs, and look at how government stimulus can help the economy. The full list of topics discussed appears as a link on your podcast provider. So it's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy. Please don't forget to subscribe so you receive these podcasts automatically. Bye for now.
1: Paul, good to speak to you again. And we have a guest here today who... Would be good if you could uh, introduce our guest from the UK.
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm sitting here, obviously in our offices in Bangkok, with uh, with Alistair Winter, who's a, a friend of mine, long friend of mine from uh, from the UK, who's visiting Asia for I think his second trip out to uh, this part of the world, and uh, still perhaps coming to terms with three four nights in Bangkok. Yeah.
0: Yes. And uh, more seriously, I act as an economic advisor to various international organizations
1: well welcome alistair to our chat session i'm in australia of course and you guys are in um, bangkok at the moment and our recording manager is in Hong Kong, I think, at the moment. So this is a truly international call. Um, I've got, I produced a list uh, of talking points that we could maybe try to work our way through today. It'll uh, it, we, of course, as usual, we get sidetracked. But I'll I'll run through the list, and then our listeners can hopefully follow where we're headed. First item on the list was the collapse in sovereign bond yield curves around the world; interest rates just falling everywhere. Second thing on the list was that. All the central bankers must have therefore got it wrong 12 months ago because their interest rate settings influenced the whole yield curve and clearly their interest rates were set too high for too long. The third thing on the list is uh, the three drivers, I think, of disinflation on the planet, which are technology, uh, cheap energy and demographics. Uh, The fourth thing uh, that we could talk about perhaps is world trade, Uh, the the so-called trade war between China and the United States. The fifth thing is the, the euro dollar, the impact of the euro dollar on world trade. The sixth item was the strength of the US dollar. The seventh item, central bankers good on the brake but not too good on the accelerator. And the eighth item was the role of government stimulus in all of this and uh, what what governments are going to do in reaction to the trade war, the falling interest rates, the low inflation, the disinflation and the low growth uh, situation that we're all in in the advanced economies. So from that list, perhaps I could ask Alistair to comment first.
0: Yeah, I'm a bit out on a limb insofar as I, I think central banks can't do much at all. And I suspect Mr. Powell, of all people, does think that. Himself, which is why he's not very popular in in Wall Street and in the White House. It seems to me this all began with Robert Rubin in the nineteen nineties telling Alan Greenspan that all he needed to do was say the right thing, and and this crave rise to the Greenspan put. And it seems this role of the central banks as accelerators. I mean, actually. Accept your point about they can't be an accelerator. I think that that's true, and I, I, I suspect they never were. It's just that it was become perceived that they were by the creation of this put, which obviously Bernanke took to extreme lengths. I don't think Yellen was quite so convinced by it, and I, I think she, to give her credit, started raising interest rates because I think she thinks there should be interest rates. There's, there has to be a cost of money uh, which i agree with of course she had her political affiliations as well so i wonder what's going to happen when the the emperors are seen to have no clothes the most immediate issue you're quite right is whether the fed is going to cut and um, i know both of you think they have to i don't see that i don't see why they have to and i think they ought not to that's a bit of a grenade into your
1: very <laughs> learned discussion about whether I would I would say that I agree with everything you said in that whole section there. I agree with everything except the last bit. Um, exactly. But, <laughs> okay. but I, I agreed with everything else. I thought your comments were just excellent. Really, really good, Alistair. So we're in full agreement until the end. And I am wondering what Paul felt.
2: I would just push back slightly, not 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 arguing, but a bit more context in the um, I think it starts with Volcker, not with Rubin. And there's always been a very, very strong relationship that goes beyond correlation be- between consumer prices uh, or consumer inflation and the Fed-, Fed funds rate. And obviously, inflation was uh, was running very high, some would say out of control in the late 70s, and uh, and Volcker remedied that. There's an argument that he overshot and in doing so created a, a margin margin. fed funds rate over and above inflation and the correction of that that actually took about 10 years it took until alan greenspan came in and started cutting rates even more aggressively Uh, it took about 10 years for for that to get corrected in doing so by by cutting rates so aggressively that created or encouraged fostered the uh, the debt bubble of the 90s and i think we've never really addressed that and when in the mid 2000s Fed's fund rate went back up above inflation rate, having finally got it down below and it went back above. That really was was a proximate trigger for global financial crisis. Now, inflation, non-existent to low as it is, is still, uh, still been running ahead of Fed funds rate, which is what's obviously been worrying Powell and co. But clearly, the economy is not strong enough to, to absorb the kind of policy that they've been trying to implement for the last 18 months or so. Because, as we've seen, the, the rates that are most affected by the Fed, the short rates, uh, they've driven those up, the medium and long rates are refusing, which which are the ones most driven by the economy, absolutely refusing to budge. So clearly, the, the economy and the bond market have been telling the Fed for a long time that the Fed were wrong to to try to put up interest rates, that there just wasn't enough strength, underlying strength in the US or other economies to do that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is a bit of a day of reckoning. and. To pick up on the final point, are, are they going to uh, cut rates? I won't comment on whether they should, because whether they should really depends on perspective. If, if they if they cut rates, they can keep this whole broken game going a lot longer. Uh, if they don't cut rates, they'll, they'll probably crash the whole thing and we'll be back to 1929 or something like that. So it depends he, which one of those you think is right. But will they cut rates? I, I think that what we've seen in the last few weeks with the, the tariff actions from, from Trump I think that's that's an attempt to really strong arm the Fed into cutting rates in June. And I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if they look at the data and they felt they had to. The, the contrary argument to that is that tariffs will cause momentary or transient inflation. And therefore, actually, you know, Trump's attempt to strong arm them may, may well backfire. I think it's, it's very hard to know which way they're going to react to that dilemma.
1: I think, though, that your conclusion is the same as Alistair's, really, that really, whether they lower rates or not, I think, you know, it really doesn't matter all that much. I think their power has become very much diminished uh, in the situation we're in. So, you know, I I mean, I think they will lower rates, but I don't think that's going to make much difference anyway. So, I mean, I agree very much with what Alistair said there, that the, the central bankers who've had the centre of the stage for so long, I think are rapidly becoming irrelevant to the whole thing. So, I'm looking much more to governments to influence our economies. The advanced economies now a lot more than they haven't than they've done in the past. Um, so I, I, in in the sense of that, I think they can do a lot more than just um, do deficit spending. I think they can do a lot more. And uh, I wonder if there's any thoughts from both Alistair and yourself on deficit spending and, and any other things that governments can do to rescue moribund economies.
2: Would you, just to pick up on the central bank powerlessness before passing over to Alistair, I mean, if you remember on the last podcast, you very eloquently said, you know, the um, the Fed are much better on the uh, brake pedal than they are on the accelerator, which I uh, translated down to to my much more um, basic level as the Fed are good at demolition, but they're not very good at construction. and uh, And I think that's, you know, that's really what we're seeing right now. And I think you're right, it needs something of a you know a fiscal uh, approach it needs a reset it needs a redistribution of where um, you know income flows go to it needs it needs a totally different approach to spending otherwise I don't see how we're going to address these structural problems particularly the debt problems Alistair? Yes again
0: I think I've got another grenade you see I really don't think there's good to be growth as measured by GDP and I'm not even sure GDP is a particularly useful measure anymore. Agreed. And uh, so if governments are obsessed with GDP, they may well... Which they are. ...try to increase their spending, but none of them have much um, capacity to do that. And it's not the most venerable institution in the world, but there's some, I read something from the University of Carolina, which is a bit supportive of the Reinhardt thing, that you get to a certain level of public debt that actually does... Put up level of interest rates, which then affects growth. I'm sorry if that's not particularly coherent, but
2: no, I think I think and, it is. I think I think the and, problem with Robert and Ranoff though, is that they looked at 800 years of debt, and most of that time was on a totally different monetary system where we were linked to gold and yes, that did create yes. a whole bunch of different. No, but uh, the, but yeah.
0: I think their thesis was that you there is a level yes. of public debt that is counterproductive, and yeah. and I think that that study. I, I agree with that. It seem yeah. to be yeah. provided in in modern, using more rec- much more recent data. So I'm not sure they could do. It. I think we, we are going into a, a, a low growth situation. Certainly, yes, measuring no. GD, GDP. What is interesting though is employment is holding up in so many yes. countries. And um, yes and no. Well, it's just. Yes, not in all, all the countries, but uh, certainly in the U.S. and the U.K., employment is remarkably. I, actually, I,
2: I would I would absolutely challenge that statement. Ah! Um, <laughs> we've, we've done quite a lot of work on this recently, and, and U.S. employment is actually it's, um, it's it's quite horrible when you look at the stats. Um, so, uh, in the ten years following the global financial crisis, America was adding. Uh, around about a million people a year to the workforce um since, uh, since the end of last year that's now started to decline and it's gone down by the best part of a million people already this year so so we've seen um uh, a real turnaround in that uh, in that situation of uh, an expanding american workforce the other thing that we saw is that from the global financial crisis onwards average hours worked in the in the manufacturing sector were increasing by i, I think it was uh I think it was the best part of uh, 10% per year. And uh, again, since April last year, we've seen those number of hours worked in the manufacturing sector go into decline. So clearly there's, there's something happening in the workforce that the headline stats, which all look, you know, as, as, as Alistair said, the headline stats look wonderful. But the underlying stats, well, if there are less people working and those people are all working less hours, well, I, I, I think there's something that's not working there.
0: Yes, It's a bit dizzying because, you know, I think I've heard you guys before, I mean, once you start saying one doesn't believe, and I think I'm prepared to say I don't believe half the statistics, <laughs> official statistics from anywhere, you know, it's easy, the, the, the sort of aunt Sallys or the Chinese, <laughs> but frankly, certainly the o, ONS in the UK come up with some very peculiar and in, inadequate numbers and uh, Harold Malngram is always fulminating against how the U.S. figures, mm-hmm. and I do accept. And he would know. I do accept that. <laughs> so it's quite difficult to know what's really going on. I have to defer that you've done the much. I certainly didn't want to create, uh, create a rosy scenario, but I mean I'm quite interested. It's probably again. I, I hope I'm not misbehaving. Uh, fact, <laughs> we I, hope I you have, are. That's wonderful. Yes. It's it's just it's interesting that I've got three well i have five kids two are millennials and three are generation Z. and i talk a lot to them they're they're all very uh, economically uh, savvy and they don't want to spend money the way <laughs> millennials and generation uh, x and and, and 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 i think consumption will fall but what they are willing to do is is accept is they want to work. They're quite entrepreneurial, but they will um, not, they will accept meaningful work rather than particularly well-paid work. And I think to some, there are opportunities like that. I think a lot of people, and whether they're being captured in the official statistics or not, I'm not sure. Um, but I do think things are a-changing. I come back to my original. I just don't see global growth. I think this Agreed. 3% Agreed. is fanciful. It's got to slow down. I don't think the government spending will be able to stop that. I think certainly in the UK there is a need for more public spending after years of you know, rather blunt bludgeoning of, of public spending.
2: Not just the UK.
0: Not just the UK, that's right. So, But I don't, I, I don't think it will... It will stop the general global slowdown that's that's in process. I mean, I just think there isn't enough. It's such a wonderful generalisation. There's too much supply, not enough demand. You know, <laughs> but, but I think this, <laughs> for anything, everything, you know, th- this, there's even too much money.
2: Th- this, is <laughs> of of, um, this has kind of been one of this has been one of Jerry's main points for I think as long as I've known him. The uh, his uh, TED thesis about you know the fact. That we're in a very different environment. What uh, what Pimco uh, sort of originally called the new normal, and that um, they now have a different uh, name for the low growth, lower inflation environment. But this is this has this has been one of your key tenets for probably as long as I've known you, isn't it,
1: Jerry? Yes, yes, Paul. It has. I agree. I am mean, I'm very much into the thesis of uh, low inflation. Uh, persistent disinflation, low growth, as Alistair says, I would agree totally, and uh, therefore low interest rates. I mean, I think we're in this for a long, long time to come. And the three drivers, I think, that are often not discussed in economic circles are the demographics of ageing, the huge impact of technology and uh, low energy prices. So I think these three things just drive us endlessly into lower and lower levels of CPI inflation, uh, disinflation, and maybe even deflation uh, in, in terms of our um, you know, cost of living and all those sort of things. So let me just give you one example on technology, uh, which might shock you. I am very much interested in a thing called the Internet of Things, which, uh, as you know, I've had a lot to do with the Internet in my past uh, business life. And uh, the Internet of Things is the new Internet. This is where machines talk to machines and they communicate to each other all the time, sending data backwards and forwards and um, algorithmically changing things. Um, there's a few issues to do with machines. One is that or, and, and robots in general. Uh, one is that robots generally are employed making other robots robots. So you end up with robots making robots making robots, which is essentially exponential growth on exponential growth on exponential growth. So the impact of that one phenomenon is huge. And I can illustrate that pretty quickly by something I saw this week. A friend of mine who's a very, very, uh, very much a genius in the IT world showed me a little device and he, it was a tiny device, not much bigger than your business card, an average business card. And he said, that is a computer. And, and I said, oh, is it? He said, yes, it's a computer. You can plug a screen into it in that little slot there, and he showed me the slot. And you can put a screen on, and then you can it, – it is Wi-Fi enabled, it is LoRa enabled, and it is Bluetooth enabled. So you can use a Bluetooth keyboard to operate this tiny little computer. And he said, uh, "You with a screen plugged in, you can get onto the net and very quickly be – Surfing the net on your browser without any difficulty at all. That's a very small device It's smaller than a business card and it is a, a computer now. It doesn't have any storage capacity It doesn't have a solid-state drive or a hard drive, but it nonetheless. It's a computer other other than that Now the, the thing that will shock you gentlemen is I wanted you to guess the price of this device now Probably in the hundreds rather than thousands of dollars. I would imagine Alistair? Yeah, less than $100. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're very clever, man. I asked this uh, question of many people this week, and I got many, many answers. Some would say $2,000. Some would say $1,000. they are trying to equate it with a laptop. Uh, some would say $600, 500 and, and, But the, the answer is $20. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's 20 Australian dollars. That's about 15 US dollars. Mm-hmm. So when you understand the economics of such powerful computing um, and the way that these things can then communicate with each other through 5G and a a technology called LoRa, you you, uh, you really start to understand the impact of technology on our world. And all of these machines are going to be talking to each other. The estimate is that there will be 20 billion of these uh, little sensors and devices talking to each other in my country alone, and my country has got a a population of 24 million, so Mm -hmm. say 24, 25 million. So, you know, that gives you some understanding that these little things are going to be in every machine and every machine is going to talk to every machine in the future. So this massive exponentiality of, of the impact of technology is beyond our comprehension economically. Uh, And technically. And the other thing is energy. We're getting into cheaper and cheaper and cheaper energy. And then the last thing on top of that is the ageing demographic. So we've got uh, dramatic um, uh, changes in the advanced economies in terms of us all getting older. Um, So these are the three things, in my view, that just drive disinflation and low CPI inflation, low interest rates and low growth. It's just inevitable this is going to continue. So, therefore, I think the central banks have got no role in this. They can just go and stand on the sideline. And I think the governments have to use government strategies to try and keep economies uh, in some sort of stability.
0: Where does the low growth come from? Because people have less money to spend, productivity as well. I yes, guess. Yes. <laughs> yes,
1: productivity and correct, and less money to spend, yes. and and the ageing too, Alistair. As people get uh, older, we just don't consume. You know, we the older people don't form families, buy refrigerators, houses, cars. We yes. do. You speak it yourself,
0: mate. <laughs> well, that's me. <laughs> I, of course, then this is another of my bugbears is what the hell is the CPI? Mm. One of my favorite charts, which is, uh, of course, uh, totally unanalytical, is a chart with three lines, and it's got the CPI line going up. Is the middle line. The bottom line is things that we don't need to buy all the time and that's they're going down and the top line is things that we do need to buy (laughs) now actually to be fair to what Gary's saying things we do need to buy is energy and I accept that is uh, falling but you know again is the CPI something that the central bank's should be trying to manage, trying to target.
2: Probably not, I, I, because I don't think they understand it. I'm not, I'm not sure yeah. any, any, any of us yeah. do. We, no, we've just done a, um, uh, a project here. Our, we've done a research project in Thailand about salaries and what's happening with salaries in the manufacturing sector. And Thailand has a very high degree of automation. And uh, you would expect that the introduction of an almost exponentially increasing number of robots into production facilities in thailand would probably have a negative effect on uh, on salaries it's it's actually had completely the opposite it's driven salaries up because what's happening so far at least is that robots have replaced automation has replaced the lower skilled level of jobs and it's forcing the skill level up so actually um Whatever policymakers think about and try and do and pontificate about, if if Thailand's going to get out of the middle income trap, it may well be uh, it may well be robots that uh, that end up getting us uh, getting us out of that. Which uh, which again, that might be too local an example. I don't know how that works on a global scale, but certainly it's 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 another complexity uh, thrown into the mix. And I think the other thing that perhaps worries me more on a global scale is. I, I didn't pay a huge amount of attention to the um, Lyft or Uber uh, IPOs particularly because I wasn't that interested in them. But what I what I was interested in is I read some very interesting pieces, primarily by uh, Matt Levine at, at Bloomberg, who was basically, he expounded the theory that technology IPOs will not work from now on. And the main reason for that is that the, the size of these unicorns before they list have been so big that they've essentially been private uh, businesses or or public businesses that operate as private businesses they've had so many shareholders institutional shareholders uh, people bought in at prices sort of three years ago that are actually the right price and that's what these guys go and list at today and the 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 people who are not participating therefore are uh, the poor participants in the IPO who go and buy the shares but also Anybody who came in during the last three years or has a price set at that, which tends to be largely key employees, and so there's if we're not careful, uh, the whole Silicon Valley financing machine has gone and totally disincentivised technology. There's there's no longer that financial incentive, at any rate, uh, to go and to go and be a, a technology genius in Silicon Valley. It's a it's, it's a pretty poor deal now, it seems.
0: Why not? They're fully, they're insiders. They the,
2: they're in the party the, well that's the point there isn't a the party if their party is set on a profit against the three years ago price and the three years ago price is, is pretty much the same as the float price because the venture capitalists went and sucked out all the profit before three years ago because of the the, the, the whole change in structure now that the, these things are so predominantly funded two three four years ahead of listing by um, by private equity
1: I agree with Paul on this. I'm very much into technology uh, in a big way. I have been all my through my business career and, and even now. I mean, Uber and things like Tesla, they're really going to be threatened enormously by competitive organisations. For example, in my city immediately now, it can cost you $10 to, to do a, an Uber ride from one part of the city to another. And the Ola has come along and it's half the price. It's $5. And, yeah. and the drivers get paid more from Ola than they do in Uber. So I can see the Uber model struggling enormously with lots of competitive organizations coming to that area. I also spent some time uh in the last week with an expert on optimization and uh he you know he just showed me uh how uh, what uber has got um, can be made even better. so you know even though they've they've sort of got there first and and but and they seem to be a big deal in America there's a lot happening that's going to make life very difficult for these unicorns in the future so I'm you know I'm not a great fan of them in terms of
0: let me understand this what you're saying is that the the VCS are taking the money out before the flotation not at flotation uh, saying essentially the
2: profit's been crystallized. So
0: I mean, I'm, I'm,
2: I'm, it's a genuine question. So no, no. So so, so the theory is that the private equity guys are crystallising. Private equity guys who used to crystallise profit at flotation, along with uh, all the other participants, such as key employees, etc. Yes. They're crystallising something like three years before flotation. What through private placement? Through private placement, yes. it. It's all it's all realised now ahead of IPO. Yes. So there's yes. there's no IPO. Uh, bonus or margin for everybody else. So the only real participants who are benefiting are the private equity VC guys. And so, you know, in the case of Uber, for instance, they have a massive cost-based disadvantage against new entrants because they have to feed all these very hungry and greedy VC private equity males. The the, the
0: capital structure, the
2: cost structure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think,
2: well, I wouldn't dare
0: disagree with such eminent uh, authorities but um, I would never have thought of it myself
2: I read yes, that living. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but, um, certainly, certainly I, you can't seem to tell whether a unicorn is ever going to make money or not
1: no no you can't that's so, right Right. that's so my point even, yeah.
0: even if you're going in before mm. the IPO yeah. You don't know. <laughs> exactly. No, and, yeah. and the PCs don't know either. But but as you're saying,
2: they're they, they at least <laughs> yeah. can look after themselves. Exactly. And exactly. the yes. employees too. Um yes. actually, adverse incentive. It creates an incentive for there to be as many of these monetizable businesses, whether they're good, bad, indifferent, whether they make profits or don't, it, it creates that yes. incentive for the BC yes. and the private now,
0: equity. I actually think that obviously that has long-term implications, but I think it actually has quite short-term implications as well because mm. the, these uh, tech companies, some of course are not far from new mm. and are not unicorns. They actually make some money, but sure. th- that's going to knock the you know the, the indices, the S and P 500s, and Absolutely. so on. In fact, it could well be happening as we speak. I'm except, sure it is. except it's Sunday, but. Um, <laughs> we all work but, on Sundays yeah, yeah. well we are the mugs but, um, <laughs> uh, certainly the the global institutions are taking money off the table absolutely they have been since September last year I think some of them are using passive funds as a hedge in case the party does go on sure but they're clearly but it's still it's still a very it's, it's a and, dynamic
2: that's changed yes.
0: yeah. and it's this and just as it's the the tech stocks that, I know it's a t- terrible generalization, but we can do, is take, took it up. It, they may well take it down. Now, one thing, uh, actually, the, the great Trump, was it him or somebody else who said that maybe we should uh, kick the the bats, not the fangs, the bats, uh, Baidu and, and, and uh, Alibaba and Tencent off Nasdaq because they're not actually genuine uh, privately
2: yeah. managed companies. Now, what will that do to global markets? If, if, if I could very quickly. Uh, so we've got a couple of views on this. What, one is, we don't really have any way of trying to understand or value um, U.S. tech right now because of this changing dynamic. But what we what we do believe is that Chinese tech is a really interesting area. It's, it's probably going to be massively volatile, but certainly for a very long-term investment, there are a few things that strike us as more compelling than Chinese technology. Um, if you look at uh, stocks like Amazon or Google, when they first listed in the States, they were, they were pretty unimpressive for quite a long period of time, several years, before then outperforming the indices by you know several multiples, I think five mm. or six times. Um, and, and so uh, we, we wouldn't be surprised if, some point, hopefully within our lifetimes, something similar happens in Chinese tech. But we we don't think we're smart enough to try and guess when that would happen, or anybody else is either. So we we, we believe. Or which ones? Or which ones exactly? Yes. So so uh, yeah. an an ETF or a broad based holding of Chinese technology actually you know makes uh, makes sense to us as the kind of thing you buy and you stick the ETF stock certificate in the in the drawer, except for the fact it's digital. Yeah. National team supporting well, yes, China indeed. supporting the, the plunge protection team waiting in indeed. Yes.
1: But, um, yeah. but the. Um, I hate to agree, but I do agree on all of these things that both of you are are discussing. I want to just bring one thing back, though, to venture capital and private equity in the United States. I think those industries are now obsolete. I think they're going to disappear very quickly and they're going to be destroyed by financial technology, technological changes in the finance uh, system, the way that finance is raised and and uh, globally, so I think they're actually, I think they're facing their death very soon. I think it's pretty much all over, to be honest, in my, from what I know, because I know a lot about what's going on in that area. And the other, need to sound so miserable about it. I, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> <said> it <here.
0: laughs> no,
1: I'm not. I'm not miserable about it. I'm just. I just know. I, well, <laughs> I um, I just know a lot about uh, the fintech world, and it's a very difficult world to understand. But uh, I've been involved in it for a long time, and I can't personally. I can't see any future for venture capital and private equity. I just Where's can't. Where
0: money come from, then, Jerry?
1: Ah, well, that's beyond the scope of our discussion here today. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very complicated uh, thing to explain. But let's let's just perhaps move back to where we were before that. Uh, I think this is all a very interesting discussion, what's happening to unicorns And uh, but it's a very, it's a minor event on the scheme of things, I think. Let's move back to talking about governments. What can governments do uh, to try and hold economies together? I'm fairly interested in that because I think the central bankers are off on the side stage now, so the governments haven't really grappled with this yet. They I think they can, des- they can deficit spend a lot more than we think uh, because when they deficit spend, they don't create new money. They just uh, pull old money off uh, off the economy and spend it back into the economy. It's not a lot different to taxation. Um, so they can deficit spend a lot more, and that can, that'll can hold things together for a long time. Now, hopefully, if they spend into productive areas, that'll even be even better. But I've got a, a few other things I'd like to discuss that I think governments could do. I think they could encourage cash in transactions. They've got to stop this endless um, move away from cash in our economies, Because cash is essentially sovereign money. And really, governments have got a lot of power to stimulate um, cash transactions. At the moment, they're standing on the sidelines and just letting cash transactions disappear in the advanced economies. And I think this is an enormous mistake by governments. So uh, this is a radical idea. So that's why I wanted to test it on two geniuses. so that's you gentlemen by the way I was going to say, are,
2: they, are they joining the call now yeah.
1: yeah that's what the three stooges would say they look <laughs> for the door where are they coming from yeah um but i'd like to i'd like to talk about this because i think uh this endless move towards the obliteration of cash and transactions is a very bad thing for governments in the long run and i, I think they've We've got to change this and, and encourage cash in transactions. So do you have it, either of you have any thoughts on this?
2: Well, let, me, let me chip in a couple of really quick thoughts and then we'll hand over to Alistair for something more sensible. But it, oh, it, oh. it strikes me that, you know, the kind of things that we're looking for from governments to, to try to restructure and try to, you know, for want of a better word, stimulate their economies. I, I, think, I think it's a bit harsh when you say that governments haven't been doing this because um, I think most governments haven't been doing this. I think if there is one exception, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced they've been doing it particularly well or efficiently, is um, is China, because China has clearly, you know, the government there has clearly used banks, used commercial banks. To, to be able to uh, go and intermediate policy in a way that Western governments haven't. And, and, you know, you might argue haven't been able to. So I think I think we I'm see sorry. something very, very different in China to what we see in, in, in most governments. And,
1: oh, yes, uh, that's true. Yes. Uh, but I, I they, think have diff- they have a different system, though.
2: They have a different system, absolutely. But I think what's really interesting there, picking up on your comments, Jerry, is that in, in China, the government seem quite happy to encourage the disappearance of cash from transactions because... I think their view, as I would understand it, is that they want to have ownership of non-cash transactions as well. So, you know, in the states, if you look at um, if you look at FANGs, they're, they're very much constrained by the silo that they operate in and not really allowed to go outside that, or else they'll face reg issues, and they're probably going to face regulatory issues anyway. But in China, I think the idea that there may be um, Organisations who are government approved or government sponsored, who uh, are able to go and be the main players in non-cash tra- uh, transactions, and therefore are given the um, the leeway to go and operate across multiple silos, I think is is really really interesting. So going back to yeah. what you were saying about you know having uh, companies relisted on on different exchanges. You know, I think the idea that one of the biggest institutional shareholders of uh, of Tencent is uh, is a South African media company called NASPERS. and that they're actually, when when they when they change their registration from South Africa to uh, to Holland, then as a kind uh, of what it is, fifteen percent shareholder or something in Tencent, they will immediately become the biggest technology listed technology company in
1: Europe overnight. Perhaps I could say something there, Paul. There's- i think all money in china in the chinese system it's very very different to the western capitalist system in the chinese system all money is sovereign there is no other money absolutely they pretend Yes. Uh, they pretend that bank-created money is non-sovereign, but the fact is it's sovereign. And it they so they've got a very, very different system. In fact, I think that gives their system enormous strength. And that's, that's what I'm saying, is we have to rediscover sovereign money in the in the advanced economies. We have to rediscover the power of sovereign money, and that, and that money is in the form of cash and notes. So, And it's just disappearing in front of their eyes, and the governments are standing there doing nothing. I think we need to really think about this because... They can inject cash into our economies very dramatically, uh, and encourage its use very dramatically. They, so, they, can,
2: they can do that with digital money as well, because as, yes. well, as you say, Chinese digital money is sovereign. Correct. So that, that's, I guess, that's the point I was making—that they yes. they have yeah. they've, they've actually brought control, sovereign control over, right. you know, over narrow money supply into the digital world, as far as I can see.
1: Y- yeah, that's right. So that's, I mean, they are showing us what they can do uh, when they're in control of the money supply in the western world governments are not in control of the money supply they pretend they are they they pretend they yeah. can twiddle interest rates and they can do this and do that but the reality is that they are always beholden to the uh, enthusiasm of the borrower and the and the willingness of the bank to take risk so
2: in the western they, they can control the cash let alone the digital well that's right I have to say I don't really I read your point
0: Jerry I don't I'm afraid yeah. I don't really understand it Take that at face value. But I think just one sort of rather tedious correction, I think uh, governments are are actually discouraging the use of cash uh, because of of money laundering regulations. Uh, and, And, you know, in Italy, you can't, you're allowed to do any transaction of more than 2,000 euros with cash governments have lost
2: control of cash I think that's why. Yeah.
0: Yes but talk me through Jay. They got, uh, they, they sovereign my, way. how did they, they, what did they do? They print.
1: Well, well, 97% of the money supply of fresh new money, the new money that's created is created as bank loans in our system yeah. so only, three, only 3% is notes and cash so yeah. uh, if you look at that you say okay well the government really ha- doesn't have any direct means by which to expand the money supply. All it, all it can do is try and stimulate the banking system in some indirect way uh to create loans and and to have to to get borrowers to come in and borrow Um, this is a very very weak situation when you've got uh, flat low inflation low growth and um, low interest rates so it's just a weak situation the western world's got it into got itself into what are you saying they print notes what happens to the notes that, no, the envelope, that, they can print notes, but, but that's not really the, the volume of notes isn't critical to the argument. The, 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 You're not the, talking about sushi here. You. I'm talking about the encouragement of the use of notes by the community. The, the, they've got a, really what they're doing at the moment is encouraging the opposite. They're, they're really. I mean, here in, in my country, nearly everybody just use waves of card now to buy coffees and buy everything. You know, I mean, yeah. no, uh, it's weirding to the point where there's no cash at all happening, no cash transactions. So the role of cash and the velocity of money just, just starts disappearing. And and then and the government has only got one real, you know, uh, uh, way of directly influencing the money supply, and that is through cash. So, mm-hmm. to, to, just, to just, it's another lever they've never used, and they've just let it sit there for so years. So, this is
2: the Fisher used. equation that you're talking about here. Um, I not. I, I think I think I think we need a modern version of it. I think that's the answer I think yeah, We need it's we, what's we me need we need we need a modern system and a modern version I think the closest that we've come to seeing that so far is what's happened in China. Yes, exactly what's
1: happening in China China. Well It's hard to know if, is, it, is it better or not, but at least exactly. they're able to get better control over their money supply So the Chinese system Every year they can they can inject huge amounts of liquidity into their banking system and basically just it's almost like forcing the banks to make loans and forcing borrowers to borrow money. So it pretty much boils down to a big injection of sovereign money every year that they're doing. And that's how they get their growth. I mean, and that's how they, the whole thing just grows and grows. We're at the opposite. We're at the point where growth is really flat and low, inflation's really low, we're trying desperately to induce borrowers to borrow with low interest rates, lower and lower and lower and lower, but it's not working. You know, So governments have to become more, I guess, knowledgeable in their understanding of money, their understanding of money supply, their understanding of the velocity of money. I think the economics profession has, in the Western world has turned its back on this whole area. So I think it's a debate we need to have. Yeah. And I, and
2: I, I agree. And I think, look, it, it, it's starting to happen. There was an article yesterday in Bloomberg, uh, basically, the, the title was uh, central banks are beginning to question uh, uh, if their models are working or something like that. And, and the, the subtitle was, no, they're, they're not, they're broken. And I think, you know, we're seeing those those conversations more and more. Perhaps that's something we can explore. What can actually happen? What can policymakers do? I think for, for right now. It seems to me unlikely that we're going to see any kind of um, completely dramatic shift of, of this kind. And I think all the focus, therefore, the rest of the month and the rest of the year is likely to be on the Fed tweaking these interest rates. That I think the three yeah. of us are pretty happy are uh, pretty meaningless in the scheme of things, yeah?
1: Yeah, let, let me run through a few other things that I think we could get into the debate on this whole subject. I think financial transaction taxes are very, very important. Uh, they could be very, very small uh, and they could raise an awful lot of taxation revenue for governments. State-owned commercial banks, I think we've got to go back to owning, to having some of our commercial uh, banks owned by the state. I think the making the banking sector completely private is foolish. Yeah. Um, so we've got to encourage that. We've got to encourage community-owned banks. We We have a lot of community-owned banks here in Australia and the government is encouraging it at the moment, and we think that's really good. Of course, they're a very big part of the German banking sector. Uh, I think local currencies should be encouraged. Local currencies can definitely have impact if they're regional. Uh, And then lastly, I think they should be encouraging bond issuance and bond-like security issuance by the private sector aimed at infrastructure investment. So I think governments have got to get a lot more, um, what's the word, creative about how they uh, manage their economies now you can't just pass this off to the central bankers and say we'll pull your levers and everything will be wonderful we're we're beyond that now we're we're well beyond it and and uh you know governments are going to have are going to be forced into having the discussion we're having here today eventually so uh i think that uh, the three of us here could lead the entire planet
0: (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to catch up because I'm still, <laughs> I'm still puzzled. Although I don't have a problem with your agenda here, these items. I might add, I'm sort of talking to uh, a new infrastructure exchange that's going to open in London in um, in September. And this is the idea to create liquidity in a uh, global liquidity and infrastructure investments this is what we need which um they are uh, they are considering appointing
2: me in some capacity there so although again you'd have to wonder how much of that is a response to the fact that china with its belt and road initiative has gone out there already trying to create Liquidity in global infrastructure investments, but obviously with some significant benefit for China involved. So perhaps this is a this is a pushback against that. But whatever the cause is, I think that's really important work, Alistair. Yeah, I yeah, agree. I,
1: I agree. I'd, I'd, agree. It's, I'd it's, like to learn it, more, it, Alistair. It, I think tell, you tell us more commercial opportunities. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, but whatever <laughs> the motivation,
2: whatever the motivation, <laughs> I think it's, I think you know it needs it needs to be encouraged. So good man, go I'll, at it. I'll, I'll 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 stick with it then. Let let us know how that goes. Yeah.
1: Uh, how do we find some information on it? Do we look up uh, Infrastructure Exchange London? Or I haven't heard of this. I'm interested.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll let you know, Jerry. I, right. I I'm not quite sure.
2: Um, Early stages, yeah. I'm
0: actually right. going to see them. No, I'm, what I'm not sure of is quite what's available. Okay. But I am having discussions when I get back to Blighty.
1: Keep us posted. Yes, I Keep shall. Well, interestingly enough, I'll tell you, Alistair, that I watch all of the stock markets of all of the world very closely, and I can assure you there are two things that are really going up quickly at the moment. One is infrastructure investment, and the other is ethical investments. Yes. There's there's a huge move towards ethical investments and infrastructure, and this is just manifesting in almost every stock market I watch. So um, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's obviously happening. I mean, as far as I can see, what they what the whole purpose of this new exchange is to create a market so yeah. people can get in and out of. They don't; they're not locked in for no, no, twenty year. No. Uh, Creating liquidity is, uh, uh, is really important, and so on. Cool. So, I think there will be uh, some instruments that are not necessarily equities. So that's it's it's no, it's exciting. So I'm look I'm looking at it. I certainly agree with you about the one of my eldest son is a. Uh, Corporate lawyer uh, in, involved increasingly in green energy. You know, so uh, that's that. He seems to be busier than ever. And I, I mean, that's again, it's anecdotal, but I, so, but I do get that at first hand, Jay. I mean, you're obviously looking at it uh, globally. Yeah, just encouraged. I think. There's one my last thought. We on trade. I think one of the things I was saying. I was speaking here in in, in Bangkok, uh, I was saying that, and it seems to be no no longer a particularly original point of view, if it ever was, and that is this split between the US and China is actually terminal, and that is going to be a huge dampener on growth. Funnily enough, in this country, in Thailand, and probably next door in Vietnam, there may be winners. Positive, yeah. yes. But it's bad news for China. It's bad news for the U.S. and it's also bad news for uh, certainly for Europe. And it's really going to be a big dampener on stock prices, on
2: growth. Absolutely. Inflation. My parting thought would be, and it's something that's become my mantra almost lately, and that is when you get into trade disputes and trade rifts like this one, they don't cause... Global recessions, they don't cause global downturns. They happen when those things are already underway and they make them significantly worse.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing to end on today, interesting subject, because my boom editorial this week is exactly on this subject so uh, i'd encourage you and all our listeners to read that it's published now it came out one hour ago so it's uh, it's available to the entire planet and i discuss this trade war in some detail so that's a good thing to end the discussion on today gentlemen Let's sign off and I'll go and read that.
0: You're clearly not a narrow Presbyterian doing all your publishing on Sundays, <laughs>
1: <Jerry>. <laughs> That's right. Good no, no. talking <laughs> to you, mate. Thanks, uh, well, thank, you, thank you both, gentlemen, for a great discussion. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, the technology has worked beautifully today. It's as if you're with me here in this room. It's, it's been a great pleasure talking to you.
2: Thank you,
1: Jerry. Bye. You. And there we have it. Thanks for listening to Jerry, Paul and Alistair put the world to rights. If you would like to
0: receive these podcasts automatically, please subscribe with your podcast provider. Thanks for listening. Bye.